0: This week on the podcast, talking about lean impact, the idea of using startup methodology to increase the impact of the nonprofit sector. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited to be here with none other than Anne-Mae Chang, the author of Lean Impact. How's it going, anne May?
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: So I am excited because, frankly, the idea and concepts by Eric Ries and, and the Lean Startup have you know percolated across the industry, and I was waiting for someone to say, hey, by the way, this applies to the nonprofit industry, but it's not the same. It's not a copy and paste. Uh, So I don't want to get ahead of myself. How did you come about this topic and your approach to it?
1: Yeah, so you know, I spent most of my career in the in Silicon Valley in the tech world, and in fact, worked with Eric Reese at a startup company about 15 years ago, and so kind of lived and breathed the lean startup principles in, in the work that I've been doing in, in Silicon Valley. And then about seven years ago, I decided to make a pivot in my own career and f- uh, focus the second half of my career on in the public and social sector and decided to focus in particular on global poverty. And as I you know, made that shift, I knew I was entering a dramatically different world that worked very differently than the, the world of tech in Silicon Valley. Um, and I had a lot to learn. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time really digging in, understanding how things worked, trying to figure out how I could contribute. And one of the things that started raising um, its head more and more over time as I understood what was happening and what was working and not was that on one hand, there is incredible, incredibly amazing people who are incredibly dedicated and doing fantastic work, um, really trying to make the world a better place. On the other hand, I felt like we were missing some of the basic tools that we've developed, um, you know, across business and industry in Silicon Valley that have helped accelerate the pace of progress and accelerate what we call innovation these days. Um, that, that's been really missing from um, the work that we do in trying to tackle social challenges. And so, uh, over time, I started gravitating more and more to looking at not so much the, the you know, coming up with the whiz bang new flashy solution to problems, but rather looking at the process by which we're going about trying to tackle these problems and how we can bring these best practices for innovation into the mix.
0: Yeah, I love it. And you know, the the book, if people are not familiar, can you give us like the, the Anne May version of Eric Reese's approach to the lean startup?
1: Sure. Well, you know, Eric talks about the lean startup as a methodology to build products and services under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And you can imagine that this is true for a tech startup company who's trying to create something that no one's done before. Um, and I would say it's equally, if not more true for the social sector where organizations are trying to work on big, complex, entrenched challenges that don't have a clear solution, whether they're trying to tackle poverty, protect the environment or battle injustice. Um, These are things that we don't have solutions that work well enough or um, to the scale that is necessary. And so there is a high degree of uncertainty. And in a realm where we're working under high degrees of uncertainty, we just need to take a different approach, you know, where we have a solution that we know works and we know can scale, then predictably executing on a plan makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, where we don't have solutions that are sufficient, we should focus instead on emphasizing the speed of learning, to try to figure out, uh, try lots of different ideas, casting a wider net, trying to learn as quickly as possible, and be able to be a, as adaptive as possible. And that's what Lean Startup and Lean Impact really brings to the table, is a set of tools and approaches that really looks at how do we accelerate that pace of learning by, you know, the core of Lean Startup is something Eric calls a build, measure, learn feedback loop. That's essentially an entrepreneurial version of the scientific method, that the idea is you if you have a potential solution, rather than assume it's going to work and just you know go all, go all out in implementing it, to really test it first by by building an experiment, then you know measuring the results, and then finally learning from from the data that we collect whether we're on track or not, and then you know deciding whether it's worth doubling down or making some tweaks or making a more dramatic pivot, and and that's really at the core of Lean Startup and and the core of Lean Impact.
0: Yeah, so the build measure learn cycle. I love the it's, it's a repurposing. I and mean, we're all just standing on the shoulders of the shoulders of the people before us. But it was a, a focused effort to say, when running this business, try fail learn try fail learn. You add uh, an extra element, you know, in his world and his vocabulary. You know, there's the idea of value of growth, but then you bring in impact Uh, how do you merge this concept uh, of impact the fact that nonprofits have inevitably a double bottom line
1: yeah. So if you think about the build, measure, learn feedback loop, the, the types of things we're testing in that feedback loop are assumptions. Um, you know, Eric talks about these leap of faith assumptions as the biggest risks um, in the way of our solution succeeding. Um, and in the Lean Startup, he talks about these assumptions falling in largely in two categories, the value assumption and the growth assumption. So the value assumption is essentially, is this something people not only want, but will demand and come back for, tell their friends? about really fills a deeply held need for them. Um, And if it doesn't, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And the growth assumption is, you know, assuming that it does fill a real need, is there a mechanism by which you can accelerate growth over time so that more and more people will be able to, um, you know, the the product or service will get to more and more people. Um, Those two things absolutely still hold true in the social sector, but we need to add in a third dimension, which is impact. It's not enough If we're trying to do social good to have something that people want and have it be able to get to everyone, you could just be selling Nike shoes at that point. Um, But it's also important that it has some social benefit. And so that is a third type of assumption that we need to test, which is if we're hoping to reduce poverty or reduce injustice or um, make people's lives better in some way, does the intervention that we propose, not only is it something that people want and not only can we get it to people, but does it have the social benefit that we hope it does? And you know what's surprising is that all too often um you know when you ask nonprofits, they, they hope it does, but they don't necessarily know for sure.
0: I'm going to uh take on the role of devil's advocate here and voice uh give a little voice to the the little gnawing thought in my head right now, which comes down to feedback loops. Isn't it an unfair advantage to say, hey, the bros that created yet another app to deliver me more alcohol have got an instant feedback loop. If more humans buy more alcohol, it's working. If they don't and no one downloads the app and like that, there it is, right? My Mm -hmm. revenue went up or it didn't. My users went up or it didn't. My monthly actives, like it's all right there. You brought up prison, for instance. And the number one thing in longitudinal studies has been shown is that actually pre-K education, doing nothing else, is the smartest thing you can do to decrease a prison population and aggregate. But how do you prove that if your cycle time is a lifespan of a of a young human? How, how do you merge this concept?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- and that's a great question. And it's one of the reasons why I wrote Lean Impact is that it is much harder to uh, to, to drive these feedback loops in the social sector, for one reason, as you, you just mentioned, is that in the business world, we generally have one customer—the same person who benefits from our product or service—is the one that pays us for it. So you have this automatically built-in feedback loop, right? That if if, um, if they like your product or service, you know, if you're delivering them alcohol and they like that, then they're going to pay for it, and you're going to know what's working, and you have this very nicely tight feedback built tight feedback loop. Um, and the social sector doesn't work that, that way um, because a lot of times you have somebody different paying for your work than is benefiting from your work. So just in that in itself, your feedback loop gets much more complicated. The people who are paying may have a different agenda, different time frame, different priorities than than the people who are benefiting from it. And so th- that adds one hurdle. And then you added in a second hurdle, which is the length of time that it will take to actually realize impact. And and that can be a long period of time, not only for for the example that you give, for, for many, many of the kinds of social changes that we hope to affect, they take a long time to fully realize. Um, and so that impact hypothesis is one that can take a long time to fully realize and, and therefore is much harder to drive these fast feedback loops. That said, I think there are absolutely ways that we can um, learn much more quickly, and and by learn much more quickly, I don't mean that we're going to have feedback loops that are as tight in time frame as we might in the business world or as definitive in the in that we know 100% for sure that something's going to happen. But what we can do is learn as much as we can with the data we can get. Um, a good example that sort of is, is somewhat analogous to the example you gave with the prisons um, one is a nonprofit called Summit Public Schools. And the founder of Summit Public Schools, Diane Tavner, when she started, set out with this idea that she wanted to start a school that would draw in a diverse student body and that these students um, in high school would 100 percent of them would graduate from college. Now, that's something that takes eight years from when they start high school to when they graduate college. And so what they did was they put in the best practices they could for education. They ran these um, their charter schools. Eight years later, their first cohort graduated and they were quite successful. They showed that they had dramatically better graduation rates than um, the average high school and people were recognizing them for their great work and wanting them to scale what they did. Um, But what was interesting is Diane said, you know, yes, we've done a good job here, but she also recognized that she was still short of her goal of getting 100 percent of these students to graduate and that she could do better. A lot of nonprofits would sort of stop there and say, hey, we've done better than, than what others are doing, let's just go with this. Um, But there's always room for improvement. And so what Diane did is instead of looking at Um, you know, let's just, you know, either scale this or let's try some to make some modifications wait another eight years, she decided to focus instead on building in a culture and processes to drive faster feedback loops in their schools. And what they did is they started running these week-long experiments uh, where they would vary the content and configuration of their classrooms um, between teacher lectures, one-on-one tutorials, um, group projects. projects, um, kind of self-paced learning on computers and so forth. And each week they would deploy, you know, a set of interventions. They would run assessments to see how the students were learning. They would, um, do focus groups to understand what the students were engaged with and not. They would talk to the teachers and get feedback from the teachers and so forth. And they would gather data. And based on that data, they would then go back and tweak what they did the next week. And so through this process over the course of a year, they were able to refine what's been a transformative approach to um, personalized learning that has now been adopted by over 300 public schools across the country. And so it's a great example of, of how they um, really took something that could take a long time to realize and broke it down into pieces. And, and you know, to do that, in short, for most nonprofits, nonprofits typically have a theory of change, of we're going to have this intervention in kindergarten maybe, and if we do this intervention, then – you know, something will happen, you know, the kids will learn better, they'll do better in school, they'll get better jobs eventually, and then they'll be more likely, less likely to go to prison. There is a theory of change that nonprofits typically map out in the interventions they do, but too often we map out these theories of change in, um, you know, elaborate detail, and then we stick them on a bookshelf. And really what this is about is just going back and testing that theory of change and testing those earlier link, earliest linkages, because if after kindergarten, the kids have not had better educational attainment, better results in their school, better you know, um, social behaviors or whatever the things are that you believe are tied to ultimate um, likelihood of going to prison. Then you can start tweaking that much earlier. You don't have to wait till they get into adulthood to go back and say, OK, let's try something different.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you you dialed in to, dial it into the practical, and, and that's what you know. I think our, our audience is thinking is like, all right, near term. Uh, this is something we call you know predictive indicators. Some people call them uh, key performance indicators, but they should build that bridge. It sounds like toward your ultimate goal, your theory of change. But if your theory of change takes 18 years to be measured, uh, it's time to find what I'm hearing. Time to find some near term markers against which you can measure the outcomes of your work.
1: Yeah, I mean you, you you still ultimately will want to measure the result of the theory of change in its full, you know, fully realized over the course of the 18 years or whatever it is, but I think it's not an excuse to not measure the first linkages of your theory of change because you did do something now that you hope will lead to something to happen you know, soon thereafter that eventually will lead to that result 18 years from now. Um, but we should be responsible about not only measuring those early steps of your theory of change and validating that they are in fact leading to what you hope, but also optimizing them, right? So um, I give a, the example in the book of if you're trying to reduce the incidence of malaria in a region, it may take a few years to see if that's happened. Um, but if you're doing so by giving out mosquito nets, you can tell tomorrow whether people have hung up those mosquito nets and if they're sleeping under those mosquito nets. And if they're not, there's no point in waiting years to determine that You know, nothing's happened. You can figure that out right away. And not only can you figure out right away that that's not happening, you can also look at optimizing that. So if maybe 60% of people are hanging up their mosquito nets, how do you get that to 90%? Can you give a tutorial? Can you run a session in the village? Can you hang it up for them? Can you give them instruction booklets? These are things that you can try to optimize that, that sort of first step of your theory of change without having to wait for years to see that it didn't work.
0: Uh, so I want to come back to the idea of creating a product, and in this landscape, the big difference, you know, coming back to for-profit, non-profit, the, the good folks creating yet another app to give me beer versus somebody trying to teach or provide malaria nets or a service on the ground, uh, what happens basically when you've got a product that you give away for free? Let's say, you know, Soup Kitchen. I'm giving out soup. It's a I give it a solid B. This has got mm-hmm. B-rated soup all over it, and my mission is to, you know, feed and educate uh, the folks that come through my door, it's not like there are market forces out there saying, hey, the person down the street gives A-grade soup, right? The market forces here actually, you know, I'm then funded by somebody who gives me a multi-year bit of money to just simply do what I'm doing. You know, the the incentive there when it comes to for-profit land is that competition pushes improvements, hypothetically speaking, in the actual product. What are the same forces that you see in the nonprofit sector or do you think that's just the landscape?
1: Well, I, I I think you've happened on another of the areas that makes innovation in the nonprofit sector much harder is that the incentives are not necessarily aligned with achieving the best results. Um, and a lot of that stems from funding. You know, a lot of funding is really pushing for short-term deliverables that are predictable um, because uh, grant makers want to know what they're going to get for their money, essentially, and who, who can blame them for that. Um, and you don't have those market forces that drive towards better results. And so one of the things that I believe is necessary is for us to really shift the funding environment um, to have grant makers not only not focus purely on short-term predictable results. You know, that makes a lot of sense if you have a solution that you know works um, and you, it's just a matter of delivering on it. But for most of the kinds of problems we're working on, we don't have solutions that are sufficient. And so it calls for us to take a little bit more risk, to be a little bit more experimental and to really try to find solutions that will work better and scale more. Um, And so that requires us to experiment. And so um, I'm a big fan of in the early stages of that innovation process for grantmakers to, instead of issuing large grants that require predictable execution, to instead um, issue more tiered funding so that you can place a lot more smaller bets to try different things, maybe with different organizations who may have ideas about the better way to solve a problem, and then double down when you see success, you know, sort of like how venture capital works um, in Silicon Valley. You know, you have the angel funding, and then you have the seed funding, and and so forth. Um, and that that, that tiered funding allows for a, a much wider set of things to be tried and allows for us to invest more heavily once we see things are working. And it's a way that we funded things at USAID through our development innovation ventures um, funding mechanism was very much modeled after VCs and this tiered funding model. Um, as things get more mature, I think that uh, funders can also create the right incentives by trying to pay more and more for outcomes, whether fully paying for our outcomes through a social impact bond or something similar, or even just at least having outcome bonuses that reward improved outcomes, you know, better value for money, if you will. Um, So the funders, I think, are absolutely key in creating those incentives and, and I think could do a much better job in doing so. I also think we can't let nonprofits off the hook entirely. You know, nonprofits all have very noble missions. But when you go in and look at the day to day of how decisions are made, a lot of times they're not necessarily aligned fully with achieving their mission. Um, you know, organizations get much more concerned about winning the next grant or, you know, getting good PR or keeping their autonomy rather than merging with another organization, even if they could get economies of scale that would serve people better. Um, and so I think on both sides, we need to look at how do we really stay focused on the mission and the best way to fulfill the social mission that we've been, um, yeah, that, that that we have responsibility for. And, and I think that that we need to be conscious about creating those incentives, both for ourselves and for the people that we work with, in ways that may be a little bit more automatic in the business world.
0: It's almost like we're, we're sort of uh, relying on the leadership and the people that self-select into this field to, to adopt, frankly, lean impact, the, the methodologies of holding yourself accountable, even if your funders uh, and sources of funding, frankly, frankly aren't. Uh, to that, you know, ultimate end.
1: Yeah, and and I think this is why people get into this work to start with, is because I believe that people who work in this space are very much mission-driven, but that the pressures cause them to, you know, end up getting focused on some of the more tactical things that they need to do. And so it's a reminder for people to really stay focused on their mission, and not only for the the employees of an organization, but also, you know, the board members of an organization that have a responsibility to ensure that the organization keeps focused on that mission. Um, And you know, part of the reason I wrote Lean Impact is to really create a framework and a language for us to have this discussion, uh, because I think all too often, you know, we get caught up in in the day to day and caught up in the the messy reality of what it means to work in this sector.
0: So I'm going to ask you a series of loaded questions because I think it's fun.
1: <laughs> Sounds good.
0: All righty. Do you believe, in aggregate, that the American dollars that come from foundations or the general crowd, individual donors, which of those two buckets do you think are more effectively applied to philanthropy in our country?
1: You know, that's a difficult question to answer because I think that foundations vary quite dramatically as do individual donations. I think there's opportunity in both fronts to uh, to to get us far greater Impact for the dollars that we're spending, um, whether you're from a foundation or from an individual. I think the the challenges of foundations, as um, a sort of in broad brushstrokes, is that foundations can tend to be very prescriptive in terms of, you know, and, and restrictive in terms of their funding and dictate exactly how that you they want you to spend the money and what they want you to do. And that restriction really stifles innovation. Um on the other hand I think individuals can not necessarily have good information in deciding where they donate money to so um people tend to donate money based on a friend's recommendation um, based on a uh, moving story and not necessarily by looking at the data of what organization is really getting the most bang for buck for the money that they're donating. Or, or, or people focus on overhead rates, which I think is a really bad proxy for the effectiveness of an organization because um, you know overhead includes things like tools that will make the staff more productive, training the staff to be more effective, and, and investing in research and development to create better solutions. Um, skimping on those things is not necessarily going to make an organization more effective. And so I think on both the individual donor and the foundation side, there's a lot of room to um, be more thoughtful about how we're making our choices and how we're giving um, out uh, the funding that we are.
0: Did I get a straightforward answer there, one versus the other?
1: Well, I don't think there's a, an, an easy one is oh, better me, than the other points, because they're points. so diverse on both <laughs> sides.
0: Alrighty, I I respect it, but... I was looking for, I was firm stance, just blindly picking one. (laughs) Follow-up question. As uh, wealth consolidates in our country to the 1 and the 0.1 percent, and with the rise of DAFs, donor-advised funds, more money is sitting in the hands of the few and the new. What is the net effect of that? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? You have to choose good thing, bad thing.
1: Well, I do think it's a bad thing that wealth is concentrating. So there, I've given you a very definitive yeah, answer. Bad,
0: yeah,
1: bad <laughs> um, I do think it's a bad thing that wealth is concentrating. Uh, be, you know, I, I think inequality causes societies to fracture and not be as stable. Um, and I think we have absolutely definitely been moving in that direction. And then I think it gives a lot of power to a small number of people to make decisions for everyone else that um, is not necessarily aligned to the the interests of the society as a whole. And this is one role that I think government plays well. And so finding ways through the way we tax people to bring more of that excess wealth into the government and having the government be effective in terms of making trade-offs that are for the benefit of the society as a whole is a better way to, to look at how to effectively use money for the greater good. Um, That said, I also think that, you know, with a lot of the new wealth being generated, there is opportunity and we're seeing some really interesting work happening of, you know, philanthropists who are being very thoughtful and who are being very forward leaning and who are taking more risks and, um, you know, innovating in ways that government probably wouldn't. And so um, there's definitely some some very positive things that are happening as well that I would would want to see continue.
0: Uh, I really, I may keep this as a section for, for more guests. I'm sending you more and more loaded questions that ultimately are intractable problems. But it's it's interesting because coming back to coming back to the book uh, of Lean back, Lean Impact, and uh, your approach. Uh, what are the more practical use cases for communicating to either funders or the general public? Communicating to them that you are in fact Iterating. You're employing this model. You're paying attention to the numbers and not just sort of uh, drum beating the mission and using or misusing pictures of people in parallel to profit.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, because I think the things that the markers that we typically look at to measure organizations like overhead rate, you know, compelling, moving, emotionally moving stories um, and vanity metrics, as Eric puts it, it, which are these numbers of, you know, total people reached or touched or affected in some way. Those are all fairly meaningless in terms of evaluating whether an organization is being effective. What I really look for are organizations who use what, you know, you know, what I call innovation metrics. And these are the unit metrics that are the drivers for overall success. You know, like, what is your adoption rate? What is your conversion rate? What is your unit cost per person that you're reaching? What is your success rate? Um, As you are able to optimize these, and if you're doing better than your peers on these types of unit metrics, then you have a real leg to stand on to say that, hey, we're delivering unique value. And as you optimize for those, so if if I can see that an organization, their success rate's gone from 50% to 80% in terms of saying, placing, you know, helping unemployed youth find jobs, that's that's something to, you know, that's something really concrete. Or if they've been able to reduce their cost of each youth that they serve from $500 to $300, that's like real progress as well. And to me, innovation is much more about driving those key innovation metrics uh, to get greater and greater leverage over time than it is the you know, the the moving story or even the kind of flashy new, you know, in- invention that someone's come up with that uses the latest blockchain or AI technology that makes a great press release. But unless it moves the needle on the metrics that matter, um, it's not that interesting to me.
0: I want to come back to one metric in particular, because I feel like we brushed over it and I love it. Uh, unit cost to serve. The amount of organizations that would get a bucket of cold water and not like the good kind that raises tons of money, but a bucket of cold water to realize the true unit of cost and then effectively the, you know, the we'll call it social impact value uh, in in that relationship. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one, if you want to distill it down into one measure of effectiveness, um, cost per impact, right, is or cost effectiveness is one good good measure. And I, and I would say most nonprofits I've talked to don't actually know what that is for them. They neither break down their costs and know how much it's costing them to serve each individual person, nor do they know what their success rate is in terms of what they're delivering. And so if we can get down to even just simply measuring the cost-effectiveness of each organization. And and once we start measuring it and putting it in front of people, then we have the opportunity to start optimizing for it. Um, I think that would be a game-changer.
0: Love it. Uh, On that note, before we move into the rapid-fire round, and May, is there anything else that you want to share about the the book or the approach?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just one general comment I would make is that – in the in the social sector you know it, it's it's exciting that people are so focused on mission and care about making the world a better place but i think that we need to raise the bar from pointing ourselves in the right direction working on something that is for the betterment of society um and not be satisfied with just having that focus but rather expect that just in the way that companies are expected to maximize profits or maximize shareholder value, nonprofits and foundations and donors should be expected to maximize the social impact of the dollars that they're spending. And And I think we need to raise the bar and, and, and set that expectation for ourselves where we feel like we're not being responsible, merely you know, kind of working on something that is important, but that we feel responsible for maximizing the impact that we're able to create with the dollars that we spend.
0: And with that, we're off to the rapid fire. Please keep your answers as short and accurate as possible as we move through. Are, are you prepared? Yes. <laughs> okay. What is one tech tool or website that you've started using in the last year that has changed the game for you?
1: Well, in, in the last year, if you're uh, going to focus in that time frame, I've just been writing the book. And so the, the tech tool I've been using is Scrivener, which is a tool for writing books, essentially.
0: What is coming in the upcoming year that has you the most excited?
1: Um, I'm really excited about the rollout of, of lean impact and, and building a movement where we have a new vocabulary, a new framework for people to start having a conversation about how do we really dramatically raise the bar um, in terms of the impact that we're having as a sector.
0: Can you talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that currently shapes the way you do things today?
1: Well uh, there was a startup company I worked at um uh, several years ago where you know we built a exciting cutting edge product um spent a couple, few years doing so and then launched it with great fanfare only for it to flop and and I think it was it's part of what shaped um you know my, my passion for lean approaches to you know you know a's a Harsh reality, um, you know, kind of going through that experience and and learning that, you know, we don't it's hard to get everything right. And and none of us uh, are perfect in being able to predict what people will want.
0: If I were to toss you in the hot tub time machine and back to the time when you were about to start writing the book, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I think the advice I'd give myself is to talk to a few more people who've gone through this process because it's 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 a more mysterious process than I anticipated, um, and the publishing industry is, industry is an arcane system that um, doesn't fu- doesn't function the way that I expected it to.
0: Do you find it ironic that you took a year to create a book about creating tra- strategies and practices that ideally test things on a shorter term cycle than that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it, it is ironic how long the publishing sector is. The, the good news is in that time frame, I was able to iterate through the book by, you know, writing drafts that I sent out to people and getting feedback. So it was not just one monolithic process, but was quite an iterative process. And, you know, I was able to write shorter pieces along the way. And so um, even though the book itself took, you know, the, a long period of time to come to fruition by nature of the publishing industry, I think a lot of the ideas in it have really been iterated over during during the last few years.
0: Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business?
1: I believe more nonprofits should go out of business. Um I think it is still um one of those things that is um you know broken in our system that there isn't the right incentives for them to do so when it's appropriate.
0: What is something you think you should stop doing?
1: I should probably stop spending as much of my time as I do uh, doing administrative stuff and scheduling, you know, all my events and meetings and so forth. But, um, you know, right now I'm just on my own and, and I'm the only one who can do it.
0: What advice would you give current college grads looking to enter the social impact sector?
1: I would say... Two things. One is follow your passion, you know, do something that drives you, will motivate you to get up in the morning, but then also temper that with... you know, and, and that's the heart side of it, but also temper that with the head side of it, which is what is the unique skill you can really bring to this? Um, it's not enough just to run after something you care about, but you want to bring some unique assets to the table. Um, and that's different for each person, but figure out what your unique gifts are that you can add to that, um, to to solving the problem that you care about.
0: How did you personally get started in the social impact sector?
1: Well, I made my shift about seven years ago um, when I took a leave of absence from Google and decided to Uh, focused the second half of my career on the public and social sector and uh, decided to start by working on global poverty, which seemed like it was at the root of so many of the issues I cared about. Um, And so I took a leave of absence from Google and joined the State Department through a fellowship program called the Franklin Fellowship and thought of it as my kind of custom master's in public policy, uh, where I, you know, threw myself into a very different world and just started learning as fast as I could.
0: All right final softball for you how do people find you how do people help you
1: yeah if you'd like to learn more about me or the book or to get in touch uh go to my website at, at www.leanimpact.org
0: well Emma, thank you for sharing your thoughts answering my hard and silly at times questions uh, i appreciate it our audience appreciates it thank you for your time
1: my pleasure thank you so much for having me
0: you've been listening for a while i would like to ask that you check out our podcast on itunes and leave us a rating or leave us a rating on any platform that you're listening to us on Uh, it sadly helps more than you could possibly realize which is why everybody always asks for them and that's where i find myself right now please leave us a rating thanks this has been using the whole whale For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast, and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale, and thanks for joining us. This week, and frankly every week's, podcast music from the one and only gregthomasmusic.org. Greg Thomas is a great source of custom music. The guy's great. He also does podcast editing. We miss you, Greg. I see you're still listening, so I will reward you with randomness. Uh, we've actually created a new product at Whole Whale called PolyTweets. It is an embeddable widget for your site that lets people enter their zip code, find their representative, and then select one of the tweets that you've pre-created to then push out to their audience. Uh, so it's an easy way to do a little bit of sort of awareness building, and it's uh, kind of crazy, but as few as 30 tweets can get the attention of an elected representative. Uh, so, you know, let's, uh, let's start getting the right messages out to the right people. politweets.org